Good news. The Original Guide to Men's Health has just finished a brand new website, and you can find it online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. Also, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. Our website has podcast episodes, resources, links to our brand new social media accounts, which can also be found in the episode description. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to The Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. On this episode of the Original Guide to Men's Health, we will be reviewing bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is a predominantly male cancer. It has a 3 to 1 ratio of being more common in males than females. It happens to be the fourth most common solid malignancy in men. We've invited two experts and guests to take us through bladder cancer. Dr. Max Cates, MD, is an associate professor and director of the bladder cancer program at the Johns Hopkins Hospital Brady Urologic Institute. His research focuses on identifying novel therapies for early-stage bladder cancer and uncovering biomarkers that predict their response. Joining Dr. Max Cates is Dr. Jonathan Wright. Dr. Wright is a professor of urology, University of Washington School of Medicine, associate professor, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Both Dr. Wright and Dr. Cates are experts in bladder cancer. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us. Dr. Cates, I'm going to ask you to give us a little background into bladder cancer. It seems like a mysterious disease because people don't really visualize their bladders and know what goes on. So I try to have patients understand the anatomy of the bladder and the difference between what we'll be reviewing as superficial or non-invasive bladder cancer versus the more dangerous form called invasive bladder cancer. So do you want to talk first a little bit about the anatomy of the bladder? Sure. So as you say, you know, bladder cancer is diagnosis most patients didn't even know existed until they receive it. And the reason for that is it's not talked about maybe as much as some other cancers that we hear more about in the news, but it is a top five cancer in men, and it still is very common in women as well. So the anatomy of the bladder is essentially the bladder is, is like a balloon. And the outside of that balloon, that layer has multiple layers. It has an inner lining called the lamina propria, and then it has a muscle layer surrounding that. And then the deepest layer towards the innards of the body is fat. And so I describe a, a bladder tumor as like a piece of broccoli. You can imagine a piece of broccoli with a flower and a stem, and the flower is growing into the center of the balloon. And I tell patients, we don't care about the size of that flower, and we don't really care about the stem. All we care about are the roots 
from that stem and how deep they're growing into the balloon and into the soil of that balloon. And so that really defines what we think about as early stage bladder cancer, where there may not be any roots at all to that broccoli. It might just be a stem and a flower, or there may be some roots that just go into that first layer versus what we would consider muscle invasive bladder cancer, which is a stage where the roots actually go into the muscle and sometimes even into the fat beyond the muscle. And so that's sort of the basics on how we understand the major differences in the diagnosis and ultimately the management of a bladder tumor. Dr. Wright, what's your favorite analogy for having patients understand this concept? I commonly use the broccoli or the cauliflower. And the other is kind of a sea anemone when you're with the patient and taking a look inside their bladder and letting them see at the same time. But I love his description of how he's done it with the roots as being the critical aspect for us. I certainly agree. So I would use an analogy of the cheek inside your mouth. The urethelium, the innermost lining that we visualize when we put a scope inside the bladder is very smooth. And it's like running your tongue along the inside of your cheek. And if a growth happened to be just on that with nothing penetrating into the muscle of your cheek, which allows you to smile and make facial expressions, then it's what we're talking about is superficial. And I used weeds. You know, people are gardening. They understand that yeah, go dig out roots to a weed. If the roots are going into that muscle, you're having a different species of bladder cancer, the invasive kind. So Dr. Cates, take us through a little bit about risk factors for both species of bladder cancer, the non-invasive and invasive type. What are the major risk factors? Sure. So the risk factors for bladder cancer come in a, a couple of forms. Okay. There are environmental risk factors, and those would mainly be smoking smoking cigarettes, as well as smoking cigars, and then occupational exposures. So historically, we thought about, for example, people that worked in the dye industry or in large manufacturing plants as having increased exposures, but there's probably many other occupational exposures that give one risk for bladder cancer. And then beyond that, there are other risk factors such as quite simply age and male status. For example, the average patient that walks into my door with a bladder cancer diagnosis is 76. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't young patients with bladder cancer. There are, but still the typical patient is 76 that walks in the door. And then there are some more sort of rare risk factors for bladder cancer. We haven't quite delineated. People always ask about family history and whether genetics plays a role in bladder cancer. And there probably is a single digit increased risk within families and within genetics of having attributable bladder cancer, but we haven't quite figured out exactly what those genetics are. So that's sort of how I, I describe in general the risk factors. Yeah, certainly as Dr. Pig said, the smoking is number one, probably half of all bladder cancer are caused by the occupational is probably 20 to 30% of them and then you get down to all the like you said the some of the the rarer ones you know other ones to that i might add are the arsenic in the water contamination which has been associated with bladder cancer and then patients that have had prior radiation we see a number of patients who have had radiation for other cancers and the radiation has treated that other cancer say rectal cancer prostate cancer cervical cancer very well but it can lead 
in rare circumstances to a secondary cancer of the bladder that can be challenging to deal with. For the most part, we're going to be addressing what we call urethelial bladder cancer. It arises from the lining of the bladder urethelium. That's just the cell type. But there is a type called squamous. It's more rare. But for people who have indwelling catheters long-term or have been exposed to a rare parasite, mostly found in the Nile Valley, schistosomiasis, they have some risk for a different cell type called squamous, correct? And we used to see that at the VA because of patients who had the long-term indwelling catheters, which I know is a risk factor and is a different disease than mostly what we're going to be talking about a urethelial. Am I correct? If we looked a little bit further into bladder cancer and you know, patients and listeners, and well, how would I know I have it? What would be the most common issue and finding for bladder cancer? Most common finding by far is having blood in the urine. And that's something that as medical professionals, we call hematuria. And when you can see it, it's called gross hematuria. And having blood in the urine that you can see with the naked eye should raise a red flag to the patient, but also to their primary care doctor. And that will typically initiate a referral to a urologist. Sometimes the urine cannot be seen with the naked eye, and that's called microscopic hematuria. And depending on the patient and risk factors in which it's picked up just on a laboratory test, sometimes based on the patients and risk factors, that also will initiate a referral to a urologist. The other way in which uh, typical bladder cancers are picked up are through imaging for some other reason. So you get a CT scan for abdominal pain, and it demonstrates that you have a bladder tumor. So those would be the sort of two most common ways in which patients walk into my door with sort of a bladder cancer diagnosis. Yeah, hematuria or blood in the urine that gross or visible, somebody urinates and sees the blood versus I didn't see anything and it's only seen because they took a urine sample at a physician or practitioner's office and the blood was seen either with a chemical test, which is very common with what we call dipstick, or under the microscope. Anybody want to comment on dipstick positivity versus microscopic? Since a lot of people get referred to urologists to investigate the blood in their urine that they can't see, the microscopic type. I can take that. So unfortunately, we haven't gotten to a point where we have a routine screening test for bladder cancer like we have for some other cancers. So at this point, there is no recommendation for routine urinalyses to evaluate it. I completely agree. If you see blood in the urine, you got to go in. And I do think this concept of the microscopic hematuria where you're, you're at your annual doctor's visit, they get a urinalysis and you see the results too, typically now with electronic medical records. If you're seeing blood, raise the question, because although it is low probability that you're going to have a underlying bladder cancer with that microscopic hematuria, the microscopic blood in the urine, we need to rule that out. And the concept of the dipstick where they're, like Dr. Palman said, putting a, a little sheet of paper into the chemical and look, looking for color changes, that can be falsely positive in some patients. And so that positive for blood needs to be confirmed with a microscopic evaluation as well. So although it is a potential early identifier, it needs to be confirmed with a microscopic evaluation. And let's just keep hammering home. If somebody's a smoker and they pee blood and see it, go in and get evaluated. 
smoking is the absolute most serious that I know of associated risk factor. There's a carcinogen in the cigarette smoke. So if a smoker sees blood, don't wait and say, well, it went away. Just seeing it once is reason enough to go. Certainly, we've seen a significant decline in the prevalence of smoking now. So we're starting to see more patients without smoking histories as well, too. So you are absolutely right. The group who has a history of tobacco use and has blood in the urine, their probability is much higher and needs urgent evaluation. I think Dr. Kitchen and I'll both say, though, anybody now that you're seeing that blood, because we're seeing more and more patients that have alternative causes of it as well, too, as we're decreasing and making good impact on decreasing smoking in our country today. Excellent. So what kind of symptoms? Somebody said, well, what should I look for? Dr. Cates, you want to talk about what somebody might experience? So classically, a patient will probably not have many symptoms other than blood in their urine. So the classic teaching when you're a medical student is painless gross hematuria. Now in practice, actually, there are many patients who are diagnosed with bladder cancer for the first time that will have symptoms that are similar to what might be a urinary tract infection. So irritation when they're urinating, some discomfort, some pain. And in fact, especially in women, they're often treated for a urinary tract infection before they're referred to a urologist, even in sometimes in men. So I'll recommend that if a patient have you know, irritative voiding symptoms and have a strong history, such as smoking, for example, the clinician and the patient should really consider bladder cancer as a possible cause of those symptoms. But traditionally, it's no symptoms with just blood in the urine. Yeah, and I, it's a good thing to emphasize. Many people go, but I didn't feel anything. How would I know I have it? There is a variant of the urothelial carcinoma, CIS or carcinoma in situ, that gives, I think, more urgency, frequency to patients, at least in the, my experience. But many of the bladder tumors, and we quite large patients, had no symptoms somebody is now referred to you because of gross hematuria. They've seen the blood, their primary has referred them to you. And what are you going to do to evaluate it? What should people expect? And what's a common evaluation? So when a patient comes in with blood in the urine, they're often quite scared themselves. If you're a patient, you know that this is not normal. So the first thing I'll do is, is I'll try to take a step back and just ask them a lot of questions. So the first thing a patient should expect is a very thorough history describing their symptoms. Do they have any other urinary symptoms? Do they have a history of any infections? Do they have a history of kidney stones or things like that? There are many different reasons why you might have blood in your urine. And so a good history is going to be really important. And then we will ultimately recommend in the vast majority of patients, cross-sectional imaging, so like a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, and we'll ultimately recommend a cystoscopy where we put a small camera into the bladder to directly examine what's going on. So Dr. Wright, the uh, reason we're talking about upper tract or kidney evaluation, ureter evaluation is because somebody pees blood. It isn't necessarily a bladder cancer. Give a little background into why we're bringing that in here. The workup, the CT scan, the cross-sectional imaging might be an MRI too, is trying to evaluate where the blood could come from. 
recognizing that the blood and the urine could come from the kidneys. It could come from the ureters, which are the tubes that connect the kidneys to the bladder from the bladder itself, or from the urethra from the bladder on out. So with the telescope, the cystoscopy, we can look at the urethra and the bladder, but we use the CT scan or the MRI to see what we call the upper tract. So we evaluate for a kidney or a ureter cause of the blood in the urine. We're gonna rule out things like kidney stones as well too. Kidney stones, you know, the most common things are stones or infections. And, uh, and again, that detailed history is so key, history of trauma, et cetera. So very important. And the lining of the bladder, the urethelium, what we call transitional cell, that extends up the ureter and into the innards of the kidney. And so there can be urethelial type or, or a transitional cell carcinoma of the kidney causing the blood. When people talk about kidney cancer, they tend to think of the body of the kidney having a different kind of cancer. But we also look for extension of the tumor up the ureter or actually originating up in the kidney. You know, people fear cystoscopy. <laughs> Why don't you both spend a moment, Dr. Cates, go through the true experience of cystoscopy in modern form with a flexible scope. What happens? Sure. So I'll be doing about 30 of these tomorrow. So I can really tell you, you know, exactly what it's going to be like. The cystoscopy is something that people get a lot of anxiety about before it happens. And then I'll routinely hear that was it. And that's really the 98% of patients, that's their experience. What it is, is it's a small, flexible telescope that's inserted into the urethra. So in a man, you know, you have a penis there, obviously. So you'll insert the telescope through the penis into the bladder. And in a woman, directly through their urethra into the bladder. And typically, I'll give a lot of lubrication to accommodate the scope going directly into the bladder. And the entire procedure is about two and a half minutes. And really the goal is to evaluate the inside of this balloon. And if the person doing it, like the vast majority of urologists are, who are very experienced at this, you know, you look around the inside of the bladder, all directions, and you can do that efficiently and comfortably for the vast majority of patients. So Dr. Wright, I don't know if you'd want to add anything to that, but that's basically my experience. I totally agree. Uh, the anticipation anxiety about it is real, but most patients, the vast majority will be surprised how quick and easy it was. We do use saline or water to help us to visualize, to open up the bladder and open up the urethra. So you will have, the patient does have running water or saline during the procedure. So you'll pee that out afterwards. There's a, certainly many different ways to do the procedure as far as the nuances of it. But urologists, as he said, are this is what we do day in and day out. Now, there's typically some lidocaine jelly instilled in at the beginning and let that dwell for a period of time to help not only lubricate, but also to numb the process of putting the catheter in. And then there are other different techniques, too, to help patients tolerate it better. And in some places, they're doing more than that additional medications. But for the vast majority, a little lidocaine jelly, and it goes very, very well and quickly. And lidocaine, for listeners who aren't aware of it, is a local anesthetic. Uh, and it does a fine job of numbing up the passageway. 
So let's go a little bit into, you pass the cystoscope, you see with a white light, standard cystoscopy, you see a cauliflower. Patients go, well, is it invasive? And you go, I don't know. And they go, how come you don't know? So explain what happens next. Sure. So the diagnosis is through the local anesthetic. So patients are awake. You put in the flexible telescope and you find a tumor. And at that point, the thing you do next is called a transurethral resection of a bladder tumor. And that is quite literally scraping out the bladder tumor. And that is both to stage the cancer, because it most likely is a cancer, and to diagnose this tumor. It's a bladder cancer. And then you've also staged it. You figure out, well, how deep are these roots going? To use your weed analogy from earlier, how deep are the roots invading into the soil? And the only way you can really find that out is by actually scraping into the bladder wall and sending it off to a pathologist to look under the microscope. And the pathologist, when they look under the microscope, can tell the different features of the bladder wall. They can make a distinction between the superficial cells versus the next layer, we call the lamina propria, or they can tell muscle. So they're actually looking to see tumor cells, whether they are invading beyond just that most superficial surface. That's exactly right. So the pathologist will say basically three things that are very useful to a patient. They'll say the type of cell involved. And so the majority of the time, as we talked about, that's going to be urothelial cancer. They'll say the grade of the cell involved. So it can basically be high grade or low grade. Low grade is where the cell divides slowly. High grade is where the cell divides rapidly. And then they'll tell you, okay, well, this tumor that's this histology, this type of cell, and this grade is not invading or it's invading. And if it's invading, this is how deep it's invading based on the other types of cells I see around it. So after the transurethral resection is completed and there are floating tumor cells because we've just cut into the tumor, do we do anything to prevent those from implanting in the bladder? Absolutely. So. Oftentimes, after a resection of a bladder tumor, right in the recovery room, we'll give a wash of a chemotherapy. This is typically a chemotherapy called gemcitabine or another one called mitomycin C. And it will instill in the bladder for about an hour and then will be eliminated through the catheter. And the catheter will then sometimes be removed or the patients will sometimes go home with the catheter. But uh, the point of this is that any stray cancer cells that are floating around in the bladder after you scrape out this tumor will be killed by the wash of chemotherapy. And that has been proven out in multiple randomized trials. So what are the majority of these cauliflower type tumors? So about 70% of the time, they're non-muscle invasive. So they are either penetrating just that first layer, that lamina propria, or they're not penetrating the bladder wall at all. And so that takes up the majority of bladder cancers. And then 30% of the time, they're muscle invasive bladder cancer. So we'll get to that because that's really a different behavior, but let's talk a little bit about the superficial. It's not going into muscle and you have a low grade. It's just on the most innermost lining, hasn't even penetrated into the what we call the lamina propria, the, the membrane right behind that lining. Patient comes back, you have that pathology. There was nothing else in the bladder. What do we do? 
So this is a very typical scenario of a low-grade non-invasive tumor. In this situation, the vast majority of the time, I will simply tell the patient, let's go ahead and look back in the bladder in about four months and reassess. And then I'll look in the bladder periodically on a schedule throughout the next five years. And that is going to be the way that the vast majority of what we would call low-grade non-invasive bladder cancers, and these are very common, they probably make up about half of all non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Do they need any other type of therapy? No, they do not. They need good surveillance and regular surveillance, meaning somebody looking in the bladder periodically. And what would you tell a person who has a non-invasive, very superficial, low-grade, their chance of having another one show up? What's the percentage risk? The way I talk to patients about their risk of a recurrence of their cancer is it's likely actually to recur. So around 50 to 60% of the time in a two-year period, the cancer will come back. But there is a very low chance of the cancer converting from low grade to high grade, probably around 10 to 15% chance of that. And there's an exceptionally low chance of it converting from non-invasive low grade to an invasive high grade. And that's going to be maybe 1% to 2% chance of that. So that's the way sort of I couch that discussion. Yeah, I completely agree. It's important that we counsel the patient that there is a, a moderate to high risk that we're going to be in there scraping one of these things, these little tumors out again. But if you start with a non-invasive low-grade tumor, the probability of it becoming something worse is very low. But we have to make sure because patients, if, oh, my cancer's recurred you know, six months later, that doesn't change a lot of what we're doing. It's kind of like why you go in and get your colonoscopies and they see a new polyp and they take that out or you're getting your skin checked. They're freezing off a couple new skin lesions on you. It's not the same. My cancer has recurred as if it's come back and it's going to you know, be a problem or not be curable at that point. It's just the experience of the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients. But it is important to continue the surveillance and to show up for those uh, cystoscopic checks. Absolutely. And I think part of the intensity of the surveillance schedule, depending on a few factors, really drives home the point that these do recur. You might say, come back in three years for a colonoscopy. We're going to say, come back every three to four months, then start spacing it out on different aspects. But we do see recurrences, but the vast majority of them, we just take care of it and unfortunately reset the clock. So you're back on your intense surveillance again, but it's a very treatable disease, especially in those most common ones that Dr. Cage commented on. Yeah. If I can remember way back, I think it was Dr. John Fitzpatrick had a population in Ireland, heavy smokers, a lot of bladder cancer, but fairly stable. So they came back regularly and he was able to map out when people's risk of recurrence was most likely to occur within months. That was a very eloquent study. So what would change things? Let's make that same patient. The tumor, the cauliflower, has not penetrated the superficial bladder wall, but now it's high grade. Anything different? Yes. So in my practice, when somebody is high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, I'm typically going to recommend treatment with therapy called BCG which is the standard of care therapy in our field for the majority of what we would consider high-grade 
non-muscle invasive bladder cancers. And this is a therapy that's been around for a very long time, been studied in bladder cancer since the mid to late seventies. So for more than 40 years and drives an immunologic response of your own immune system, your own body to fight the bladder cancer. And so it's given as an installation once a week for six weeks, typically. And then, you know, about a month or so after that, I'll take a look in the bladder and assess how the patients responded to that therapy. So that's going to be the traditional route for a patient who has a high grade non-Muslim invasive bladder cancer. So this is a solution that is placed in the bladder through a catheter. The catheters are drawn and patients hold the solution for a predetermined amount of time, roll around so it hits all the surfaces, void it out. And it's thought to help prevent recurrence because its action is immunotherapy. So the way that BCG works, we've come a long way. We used to say we don't know how BCG works. And actually in the last five to 10 years, we've learned a lot about how BCG works. So there's two ways in which this therapy works. There's a direct cytotoxic response against the cancer. So the BCG directly kills cancer cells. And then there is this broader immune response where the BCG will recruit to the bladder T cells and other immune cells to create memory, like it's an infection. I mean, BCG is a relative of tuberculosis. So like an infection, it will create a way for the body to send T cells and other immune cells to recognize cancer and then fight that cancer. And Dr. Wright, there's some people who have some side effects from the BCG. What should we look at? Right. It's priming your immune system to be ready for a cancer cell. And you know, I also describe it as we're tricking your bladder with this tuberculosis relative into thinking that it has an infection. So the immune cells can come down there and say, well, there's really no infection here, but I'm going to, that pre-cancer or that cancer cell shouldn't be here. So I'm going to take care of them while we're here. By turning on your immune system, it makes most people feel like they have related to a bladder infection, urgency, frequency, burning when they urinate, occasionally bleeding after they urinate. So those are things that most patients have. It usually the first couple of treatments while your body's building the immune response, you might not have that, but with successive, it does. And because it's releasing these immune cells in your body too, not uncommon for patients to have what we call systemic symptoms where they're gonna have low-grade fevers, they're gonna have muscle aches, fatigue, Typically, these things last for a day or so after treatment, but it certainly is variable throughout what everyone experiences. But certainly as we're getting our flu shots and our COVID shots and our boosters, it's the same type of principle of re-upping your immune system and you might not feel so good for a short time afterwards, but it also tells you that your immune system is mounting a response to the stimuli. We've experienced some BCG production shortages. So you call your pharmacy telling them you have a patient you want to put BCG in and they go, we're out. What do we do? Really over the last decade, we've had periodic shortages of BCG. And there's a number of reasons for that. We really only have one supplier in the United States, which is Merck's Tice strain of BCG. And so, yes, you're right. There are BCG shortages. There's currently a BCG shortage going on. 
And so the way that that's typically managed is going to vary depending on the urology practice and where you're being treated. But we do have some emerging data that shows that a reduced strength of BCG, either a one third or one half of the strength is as efficacious as a full strength dose of BCG. And that's something that we've learned very recently through the last two years of the last BCG shortage. And that's what many centers are doing. They're doing what's called split dosing, which is a reduced strength of BCG, either one third or one half. I would reassure patients that emerging data is showing that it is as efficacious as full strength. And particularly, there are some patients who get a lot of that urgency frequency. You can go to the reduced dose and that helps? Sure. So one of the ways that the toxicity of BCG is managed is by going to reduced dose, which helps the symptoms of that frequency and urgency without what we think we don't believe will be losing efficacy. As we review the then patient who had the BCG for their superficial bladder cancer, high grade, and they come back after they have had their six weeks and you look in their bladder and you see another tumor, what happens there? So that's a scenario that really depends on the type of cancer that recurs at that three-month point, at that, that first cystoscopy right after the BCG. Sometimes we'll give more BCG. Sometimes we'll say, particularly if it's an invasive tumor at that first one, BCG is not working. But to a point that Dr. Wright made, BCG is a immunotherapy. And the more doses you give, the more of a memory response your bladder is able to get to fight the cancer. So boosters are really important. So if it is a tumor that is either very superficial or even sometimes that CIS tumor that we talked about, that flat tumor, we'll still give at least one maintenance course of BCG where we give it once a week for three weeks. So that's all to say that when somebody has a recurrence of their bladder cancer, that doesn't mean that the therapy is not working, especially at that first cystoscopic evaluation, but it does mean that they need to be re-resected, restaged, and then have a follow-up discussion with their urologist. Yeah, we're going to get that information again, those three points that Dr. Cates talked about, the type of cell involved, type of bladder cancer, the stage, does it invade, and B, the grade, is it fast or slow? Reset, get that information, and then you and your urologist will work together and determine which pathway to go. And there are several different possibilities depending on those features from the repeat biopsy. Not a one-size-fits-all. And there are some patients who, as a result of that discussion, might have a prolonged, not just the induction of six weeks, but continue on maintenance for a time? Yes. Typically, patients who have a good response or a prolonged response to BCG will want to continue it for at least two, sometimes even three years if we can. Now, we'll constantly be talking to patients about their symptoms making sure that they're not having too much toxicity from the BCG. But so long as they're tolerating it well, we'll want to continue it. And this typically happens once a week for three weeks, and then every three to six months, depending on how far out they are from their diagnosis. So we resect the tumor and find that the tumor is now going 
beyond the lamina propria. What do we call this? What is it? What do we have to be worried about in this species of tumor? Dr. Wright? Well, as Dr. Cates outlined from the beginning, the next layer after that first lamina propria layer is the muscle layer. And certainly for us, that is a big decision tree point. For those that have muscle invasive disease, there's a significant treatment difference that we're going to have than those that are not muscle invasive. With a muscle invasive tumor, it's a more aggressive tumor. And so our treatments have to be more aggressive as well, too. And now we're talking about IV systemic therapies like chemotherapy and removal of the bladder, potentially. Also, in some cases, we'll consider the role of radiation with chemotherapy. But in most situations, when a patient is faced with muscle invasive bladder cancer, we're moving down the path ideally of upfront chemotherapy followed by removal of the bladder and urinary reconstruction. It is a big thing to undertake and certainly one that is done at fewer and fewer places. So there's greater expertise in how they do this operation and treatment. Let's discuss that for a moment. This is a more lethal tumor. We've been discussing tumors that are not in muscle that really can't metastasize, correct? Low risk of the non-muscle tumors have a much lower risk of spread or metastasizing, yes. But when you find muscle invasive tumor, it has a much higher risk of spreading and causing death. Certainly. Left without aggressive treatment, muscle invasive bladder cancer will progress and prove fatal. And as Dr. Cates was saying, that's about 25% or 30% of current bladder cancers. So we're treating these more aggressively in the sense of you're talking about removing a bladder and people are going, wow. But we've made a lot of, a lot of progress in creating bladders for people. So talk a little bit about how we do this, what's it like, what the quality of life is like, so that people just go, oh, no, I would never do that because it's a lot different than it used to be. Dr. Wright? For a muscle invasive bladder cancer, it's the standard of care, the typical treatment is chemotherapy first before surgery. And the reason we like to give the chemotherapy first is that data has shown that it improves survival for patients. I tell patients that I can cut out the bladder, but my knife can't help with a microscopic spread somewhere. The chemotherapy is needed to go ahead and kill that microscopic spread somewhere else. And because we have a high risk of spread from muscle invasive bladder tumors, we prefer to give chemotherapy first because it can take a significant amount of time, a couple of months to recover fully from the surgery such that the medical oncologist is going to want to give you chemotherapy. You're going to be strong enough for it. So we try to give the chemotherapy before surgery when a patient is really strong at that point to kill all the microscopic disease, hopefully, and even treat all the tumor in the bladder. And then Dr. Cates and I will go in, remove the bladder, remove lymph nodes, and do a reconstructive surgery with the hope of that combined approach being able to hopefully cure you of your cancer. Although certainly we are at high risk for recurrence and relapse with that too. Now, as far as the reconstruction goes, there are three primary different ways that we can reconstruct your urine stream. We take out your bladder, you have to have some way to get the urine out. All the ways to reconstruct your urine use your intestines, either your small or your large intestine or even a combination of them. One common way is called an ileal conduit. It's a conduit, kind of a road or a pathway for the urine to go out. That goes out to a stoma, 
drains into a bag continuously. That is a common way that the urine tract is reconstructed. There are also neobladders, neo meaning new, a new bladder or bladder substitution where we take more of your small intestine and create a balloon or a ball again, and then have that hooked up to the kidney tubes and also hooked up to the urethra so that you can void your urine out your urethra as you did before surgery. And then also there's what's called a continent cutaneous urinary pouch, also sometimes called an Indiana pouch in some places. There are several different reconstructions with small and large intestine to do this, where the urine is stored on the inside and an individual catheterizes through their belly into that internal reservoir. This all sounds very complicated. It's there. The most important thing is that each of these has an excellent quality of life. Afterwards, there is not one best solution for every patient. Talk to your physician. Many times they'll have other patients that, that have had a similar procedure and can talk about the pros and cons. The quality of life is quite good for all of these options. And our goal is to get you back to your normal life. However, we reconstruct your urinary system. And Dr. Cates? Yeah, I thought that was a really great summary of what we do in the operating room on a regular basis. But I think the most important thing that Dr. Wright just said is, is that patients talk to especially other patients who have had these urinary reconstructions and ideally from the surgeon doing their surgery. And I find that if a patient is on the fence about what urinary reconstruction they want, after they talk to a couple patients and get their interpretation and their experience, it becomes a lot more clear to them which one is right for them. It's not something that is made at that initial visit with the patient at all. It's a process. And so I would just echo this statement. And usually when patients are presenting with this sort of more severe type of tumor, it's a multidisciplinary approach, as Dr. Wright was saying. It's the chemo and the surgeon, and they're actually being guided through a team of physicians, correct? Absolutely. We try to put all the brains together to take the best care and the right care for that individual patient. And that takes people from different services as well. Now, most of our patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer will, if they're eligible for chemotherapy, because not everyone can get chemotherapy first. There are certain medical factors that your physicians might not want you to have chemotherapy up front. So not everybody's going to get chemotherapy up front. Again, that's why you want to have the multidisciplinary discussion about the care. And although most will have bladder removed with bladder cancer, there is a subset of patients, a minority of patients who are excellent candidates for what we call bladder preservation or trimodal therapy, where patients that have a single solid, these are patients that have a single bladder tumor typically. We'd like it to be small, not more than a few centimeters in size, one that we can completely resect uh, through the telescope. We don't see any evidence that it's through that muscle into the fat layer. It's not at all blocking the kidney tubes that come down the ureters. We don't see that other CIS that we've talked about before either. If you meet all those criteria, that is an excellent patient for consideration of radiation with chemotherapy, with the urologist going and re-scraping the area as well, even before that. So that is a good option for a select patient population. So that's bladder preservation, but treating the tumor with chemo and radiation. 
and then continued surveillance afterwards of both cystoscopies regularly and CT scans as well too. And in a very well-selected group of patients, 70, 80% will be able to keep their bladders, but we need to watch because it can recur and have that done. When you were talking about surgical approaches and the making of either a conduit or a neobladder, you mentioned removing lymph nodes, and that's part of the surgery. It's done at the same time. That is not only prognostic, meaning are there tumor cells in the lymph nodes, but it's also a treatment in the sense that it can be therapeutic, correct, in bladder cancer? So the reasons why we do a lymph node dissection is essentially to do a complete diagnosis of the patient. If their cancer is outside of their bladder, is it in their lymph nodes? And typically we'll remove the lymph nodes, as you said, in the pelvis and then going up from there into the lower back. And the other reason is that in some patients may be therapeutic as well. So what I mean by that is if we remove 30 to 40 lymph nodes in a lymph node dissection, and if one of them happened to have cancer in that lymph node, then we know from long-term data that a certain percentage of the time, that patient could have been cured from having that one lymph node removed that had the cancer in it. So there are a couple of reasons why we do a lymph node dissection. First part of the surgery is removal of the bladder. And since the urethelium continues on through the urethra and the prostate, that's removed. And then you have to make the new bladder. Is this done robotically with scopes or open or just depending on surgeon's preference or what's acceptable? All the removal and the reconstruction is primarily surgeon preference for an open larger incision or a robotic. There are two different ways to do the same operation. Max, you do them both too or you do them all robot? No, I do them both open and robot. So both of us do them both ways. And there are various reasons why one to be done in one direction or with one approach. I think the most important thing is you want your surgeon doing what they do best and what they're most comfortable with on your operation. So these are ways to take out, they take out the bladder and to do the reconstruction. And you make a good point, Dr. Pellman. This is a one-time operation of the removal of the bladder. And in a man, we're taking the prostate out typically as well too. Part of the lymph node removal as well. And then the urinary reconstruction. This is a long day for the patient, the providers, and for the family and friends waiting for these people too. And you're looking at you know, a multi-day hospitalization. All of us use different pathways to try to help get patients out sooner, get them home. But certainly there are complications given how many moving parts there are with this operation. And a number of patients will bounce back in the hospital, as we call it, in the first couple of weeks afterwards. But again, we've continued to improve our technique, not just of surgery, but also in the recovery. And we're doing better and better at improving that as well. And I tell patients that most of my patients, when I talk to them at the three-month visit, most of them are back to about 85% of where their strength was, where their energy was before the surgery. I tell patients, you get there, but it takes a while to get there. We want to get you back to doing all of your preoperative things that you did in your life. I would totally echo that. One thing I also tell patients is I say, it's not just me doing the surgery. You're part of the surgery too, because your motivation and how you sort of push yourself honestly after surgery is going to contribute to how well you do. 
So we're a team. Absolutely. And, you know, I just like to make a point. It sounds like a very drastic operation, but the risk for the patient of not removing this type of muscle invasive tumor is that it is a very lethal disease. And if they leave the tumor or the bladder in, there's a high risk of recurrence of new tumor growth. And these people bleed and they end up having a lot of hospitalizations. Having wanted to avoid a big surgery, they end up in the hospital anyway with bleeding from tumors in their bladder that they decided not to have removed. And they don't really understand that you know, by having the bladder removed, you're removing the source of all this. And while it sounds like a big deal, it does save misery down the line. And that does, I think, come back to the point both of us made earlier, you know, asking your urologist, can I talk to some patients who have gone through this before? And usually we're able to pair you up with someone of the same gender, some of the basic same age group and reconstruction options, because it's not just that part of deciding which reconstruction to do, but it's also helping those patients with survivorship afterwards. And many of these relationships will continue on afterwards. And it's pretty exciting to see that too. So helping patients help each other to understand what survivorship is after bladder removal and how they can get through it is very helpful. So this is a great segue into resources for patients. We do have a website for this podcast, and we try to list the resources, and we also name them. So why don't you both give your favorite resources for bladder cancer patients? The primary resource that both of us send our patients to is beacon.org, like a beacon of hope, B-C-A-N, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network.org. It's a wonderful foundation started by the spouse of a bladder cancer patient, and it has just grown over the years to advocate for patients, to offer support services for patients, to put patients together, to help fund research, to bring ideas together. They have phenomenal products, it's a wonderful resource for patients and for families to work through. Look for local support groups. Ask your doctor about them and other patients. Dr. Kate's beyond Beacon. Where else do you send your patients? I send my patients to Beacon, and then I send my patients to other patients. I find that Beacon is a great resource, and I don't love having patients have way too many resources, right? If you have one good place to go to that has all the information you need, that's good enough for me. Well, we have covered a lot of material and we've left some things out that are kind of fine-tuning bladder cancer. So I hope listeners aren't taking this as an exhaustive investigation into superficial and the invasive type of muscle invasive bladder cancer. But I do want to just touch on one last thing because we are making progress in bladder cancer and talk about biomarkers or what are we doing as far as looking at ways that people can maybe find out if they have bladder cancer or not. Uh, Dr. Cates, I'll start with you. Sure. So my hope is that if we do this podcast again in five to 10 years, that we'll be talking about ways to have diagnosed the bladder cancer, maybe without the cystoscopy, and we'll just go straight to staging the cancer. Or we'll even more so find ways to treat the muscle invasive bladder cancer with just chemotherapy, and then know that the patient's never going to recur so that they never need surgery. You know, as a surgeon, I always joke that I'm doing research and I'm participating in research like Dr. Wright is to try to figure out how to do less surgery on our patients. So I hope 
that will be able to use biomarkers. And this could be in the blood, it could be in the urine, and it could be in the tissue, looking at the cancer cells themselves. But using these biomarkers in order to make it so that bladder cancer is not only a much more curable disease than it is this very moment, but is a disease that we can treat in ways that are less invasive for our patients. And this is an area where we're really engaging with you, the patient, for how to find these new biomarkers or to find this best treatment. You come into both of our clinics and we're going to ask you, can you donate your urine? Can we draw some blood so that we can save these and do analyses on these to try to identify biomarkers to detect cancer earlier or to help us drive treatments? You may be asked, to participate in clinical trials as well, too. These are extremely important to help us to give and identify those new treatments that we can talk about in the next five years when we're doing this again, hopefully even sooner. But you all are really a part of this, and research can't be done with physicians alone and researchers alone. We need the patients to participate. Well said. So I thank you both. I think there's more we could potentially go into, but I think we'd exhaust our listeners' patience. So we've covered a lot of ground. You've given us great reference and source for people to find further information. You know, for one word, if somebody is not a smoker, don't start. And if they are a smoker, stop. And if they know somebody who has just told them they've been diagnosed with bladder cancer, have them listen to this podcast and go to Beacon for further information. I just want to thank you, Dr. Max Cates. Dr. Jonathan Wright, truly appreciate your participating in this episode on bladder cancer for the original guide to men's health. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This completes another episode of the original guide to men's health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.